The Bible opens with those familiar words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first truth revealed about God in Scripture is that He is Creator. And on that initial page of the Bible, we witness the Creator at work, fashioning, systematically ordering the universe in six days. In the second chapter of Genesis, God situates Adam in the Garden of Eden for what purpose? Well, obviously, he's put there to live there, to be sustained there, to walk with God there, to learn from God there. But Genesis 2.15 says that God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it. Now, some scholars want to argue that those Hebrew words should be translated differently, the work and keep. I believe these words rightly render the Hebrew text. God gives life to Adam. He pro- provides for him a habitat. And then He puts him to work, ordering, managing, and keeping the garden. So in the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn that we serve a God who works and who has designed us to work. Serving as God's vice regent on this planet, we image our Creator as we gain our living from the earth and labor to subdue it to the glory of God. Now most people on this planet would dismiss everything that I've said up to this place. To say nothing about creation... Just to look at the issue of work, they work because they have to work. They work, some of them, because they like their work. They work, many of them, because other people expect them to and and they're needed by others. Some other reason or other that ignores God and exalts self. I think we can say that the majority of people on this planet rise and go to work each day with no thought of the Creator. No thought of their purpose in this life. They simply do what's in front of them that day. But for those of us who have been born again and rescued from our sin by Jesus, we rejoice to live under His Lordship and to align our lives with the moral DNA of the universe. And so with spirit-filled zeal, we acquire wealth in submission to the wise counsel of our Creator. And that brings us back to the book of Proverbs yet again today. Proverbs chapter 10. Last week we completed the first section of Proverbs, a section of Solomon's lectures which call us to learn wisdom and live with moral skill and discernment. In chapters 1 through 9 are presented two distinct pathways, two distinct ways of living. One is the way of folly, moral foolishness, living out of sync with God's creative design and counsel. And the other pathway is the pathway of moral wisdom, living in in sync with God's creative design and counsel. We have to be absolutely asleep if we don't see in Proverbs chapter 1 through 9 this call to take the right path, to live with moral wisdom. In chapter 10, the Proverbs, which we're prepared to analyze, to search out, to learn to read, now begin. 
We're not going to work our way through them verse by verse as we have through chapters 1 through 9. But we are going to enter into this section just briefly here today. Proverbs 10 begins the Proverbs. We see that there at the heading, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now that we've already been introduced to Solomon in chapter 1, I don't think this is a separate book or anything of the like, but here we come to the formal Proverbs. These short statements of wisdom. Now for the most part, they are randomly arranged. You're likely familiar with the book of Proverbs, and you can see that in chapter 10 as you work your way through. They seem to be fairly randomly arranged. That is, you can read an individual proverb without concern about the context because there really is none. Now there's a larger context, but not within the specific chapter and and verse where you're reading. So one proverb is unrelated to the proverb before it and the one after it. General statement. And yet, there is a rather, there's rather extensive evidence from the Hebrew text and the way that it's put together that those who arrange the Proverbs were doing more than simply randomly adding one to the next. There are literary ideas literary tools that find themselves in the Hebrew text that miss us largely, which indicate some sense of thoughtful arrangement. Particularly, this is the case for us as we learn to read the Proverbs, when we see a theme or a key word popping up in several Proverbs in a row. I think it would be unwise for us to think that's mere coincidence. But rather, as we look at the larger structure and how it's put together, and we won't obviously get into that here today, we realize somebody with great creativity is arranging these Proverbs. But again, particularly when we see a theme that is repeated from one to the next. And as we come into chapter 10, we find exactly that situation. Proverbs 10, 1 through 5 deals with the theme of work and gaining wealth. It may not seem that verse 1 is part of this discussion, but when you compare it with verse 5, it's clear that they hold together as a unit, as a theme is repeated there. The first verse hangs, in a sense, as a banner over all of Proverbs 10 and following, as we find these Proverbs. But in some measure, it is also directly related to this theme of gaining wealth. And as is often the case in our study through Proverbs, we develop this theme, work ourselves into this theme, and then we have to stop because the first verse is somehow unique. And that is again the case here. But Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1 reads that a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. This does relate to what is to follow as far as gaining wealth and working diligently. But let's stop here for a moment. Let's consider the broader point. Again, verses 2 through 5. How a child works, when a child works, and the means a child employs in gaining wealth are sources of joy or sorrow to the godly parents. But stopping for a moment and considering this verse on its own merits, apart from the immediate context, we realize this really resonates with life, doesn't it? 
Now, don't think just of children here. We're all children of someone, somehow. And think of how this connects with our life. Children can be a source of great joy to their parents. Children can be a source of great grief to their godly parents. Far from downplaying this reality, the Proverbs of Solomon emphasize it. We're going to look here just at a string of references on the slide before us just to save time and turning to each one. But in this following string of verses, note how a child's life affects his or her parents. Note the connection. How a child lives has an influence upon mom and dad. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Proverbs 17, 21, He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Verse 25, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Proverbs 19, 13, A foolish son is ruin to his father. 19.26, he who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Proverbs 23.15, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. Chapter 23, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons brings what to his father? Brings shame. 29.3 He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth, which doesn't make him glad. 9.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. 29.17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. This is not a theme that Proverbs just hints at once. But this is a theme, a reality of life, that there is a connection between children and parents that can be a source of great joy or a source of great grief. I think along those lines, just parking for a moment, a word to children. If you have parents who love you, and I, I should say in going into these thoughts first, obviously Proverbs is looking at life ideally here. That there is a father and a mother raising children. It looks ideally at the idea that that these parents are godly parents who desire what is right and best and are following the counsel of God. All of that's understood. And recognizing we come into this room with lives that aren't lined up like that. There's all kinds of failure, pieces missing, difficulties in our life but we're not going to deal with those difficulties if we don't understand what is right and so we come in with this somewhat idealized idea of a father and mother working together marshalling the counsel of God and teaching their parents we need to stand there start there with that standard but saying that and realizing that all of our situations vary somewhat 
if a child has godly parents, if you have godly parents who love you, who love God, there is nothing you can do in this life that will bring them greater joy than to love God with all of your heart. There's nothing. Their highest ambition for you is that you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and live with moral skill in the fear of God. But it is important to know you can also bring great heartache and shame to your parents by pursuing a life of sin and selfish ambition. That is within your power. And you don't have to be 14. To bring great heartache to your parents through moral folly, you can be 27. You can be 35. You can be 61. We have that power to bring that grief to godly parents. Now the point here, what is, what is the teacher striving to do? The point here is not to intimidate you, to pressure you to live for God. And that's the point of why we have this message here today, is just to press you and to intimidate you and say, well, you sure don't want to shame your parents. I don't think so at all. I think the point is to warn you that your actions will affect others. And that's one of the things in coming out of maturity that we come to recognize how I live affects other people. To come to terms with that reality. And I think this counsel is intended to take away the shocked response of the son or the daughter who says, if I had any idea how much pain this was going to bring to my mom and dad, I'd have never done it. You're warned here to heed the Word of God and live. Not to suffer foolishness and pain without counsel. God is warning us here for our good you can bring great grief to your parents. You can inflict deep suffering upon them. Know this, children. Again, however old we are as children, know this. And God also here, I think, graciously encourages us. You can be a source of joy to them by fearing God and living your life for His glory. Now, if you live for the glory of God, or say you do, in order to make your parents happy, everything's going to fall apart. That's just playing a game. But here is part of the joy of following Christ. I know that as I love God and serve Him and indeed live for His glory, this is one of the great benefits that godly parents around me, my biological parents, my spiritual parents who surround me, will have gladness of heart. We not know that joy? Seeing one another, brother and sister in Christ, living for God, serving Him, and having joy because of it? thanking God for how He's changing our lives. There's great joy in seeing the Lord at work within us. So young people, seek the Lord. Serve Him. Unite with His people in a faithful local church. Stand for His truth. Witness to unbelievers. Trust Him wholly. And be zealous for good works. And you'll bring joy to the people you want to bring joy to, that you should want to bring joy to. A word to parents. 
You know, a fundamental characteristic of love is that it renders your heart vulnerable to immeasurable depths of pain. To love a child is to give to that son or daughter the ability to wound you beyond imagination. But would you really want a world free of the love found in church, friends, family, children, pets? I mean, it hurts when a pet dies or bites you. Uh, it, it, there's pain in letting that thing in your house. A risk of pain. But when it comes to children, anyone that we choose to love can die. And anyone we choose to love can betray us. And anyone that we choose to love can prove disloyal to God and thus bring the ultimate pain. When that disloyalty is evidenced by a son, by a daughter, the pain can be excruciatingly difficult to bear. And there are parents walking around with a love for God who bear that pain every day. Their lives have been altered in such a way, as Proverbs puts it here, that there is no joy. Now we have to fill in the right blanks there. But there's a joy, there's a light, in a sense, that's gone out inside. That is a real pain we have to come to terms with. And for those who are coming to terms with that pain, there is hope and there is grace in Christ and there's something called a local church. Thank God for that. We can talk with one another and encourage one another and say, I know, I understand. We can weep. We can weep with one another. And help bear that load. As heavy as that thought is, certainly there is the joy and the blessing of those who live for God and bring such joy to their parents, spiritually their parents and physically their parents. Verse 2. As we move on from that larger theme, we move to the topic at hand, and we read that treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. If you gather wealth by lying, by stealing, by deceiving, by cheating, by misusing others, or by any other godless means, you will not profit. Obviously, you may get filthy rich. Many people do. But there is a God who rules from heaven's throne and no one gets away with anything. 
God counsels us to understand that this is how life works. Ill-gotten gain will not profit in the end. He says that to us here. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Know this. Understand this. Align your life with it. It is morally stupid to lie, cheat, and steal your way to wealth. Be wise. Don't do it. Pursue wealth honestly, with integrity, and fairly, and with love toward others. That's the calling of God. That's the way of wisdom. Yeah, but the only way I can make money at my job is to deceive people. I have to lie now and then. I have to manipulate others. I can't tell them all the truth. That's my job. Then get another job. You're a Christian first. Think about how you're gaining money and align your life with your Creator's counsel. Gaining wealth by wicked means is a recipe for disaster, not for prosperity. And wise people understand this. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but in contrast, righteousness delivers from death. Now taken contextually, it's probably to understand righteousness here as honesty, integrity, fairness, love for others, gaining wealth appropriately, and death here, the punishment that comes when we do not gain wealth rightly. Righteousness not only secures wealth legitimately, it also delivers us from death. But certainly the concept applies more broadly, more globally, than simply the idea of gaining wealth. I mean, think of it here. We just see the pointers forward, don't we, in Christ? Righteousness delivers from death, doesn't it? I mean, it's true of this immediate context, but we gather today in joyful worship because righteousness from God has been freely provided by Jesus Christ. Those who have received Christ's payment for our sin have placed, have that righteousness placed on our account. In that we rejoice. That is not precisely what this passage intends to say, but it is the direction this passage ultimately points. Righteousness delivers from death. That was to Solomon a call to live above reproach before God. But how blessed we are to gain wealth and pursue eternity in the confidence that Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account. That we come before Him not as those who earn His righteousness by the way we get wealth or by the way we give wealth or by who we are but His righteousness is gained through trust in Christ's death and resurrection for us. That should motivate us all the more to gain wealth honestly and justly, inspired by the fact that Jesus became poor, that through His poverty we might become rich. Now that effort does not necessarily result in material wealth but it does result in spiritual and eternal wealth, and it does result in God providing for us and maintaining our lives. Righteousness delivers from death. Unrighteousness leads to death no matter how rich you get in the process. You're not going to win that way. You might win in competition against others, but you will lose. Get wealth honestly. 
don't use means that are outside the character of God. Verse 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Same theme. But He thwarts the craving of the wicked. Here again, we are gaining wealth from the world. God putting us in this world, creating us as creatures to go out and get wealth and to sustain our own lives. Here we have again the instruction, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Those who walk with God, those who go after wealth honestly and faithfully are rewarded by the Lord. This proverb is not claiming that no child of God will ever go hungry. The Apostle Paul went without food during stretches of ministry. He talked about being hungry. He wasn't doubting God there. This is a proverbial statement. Generally speaking, God supplies the needs of His children. That's how it typically works. Sometimes they risk things for God, and sometimes He leads them through suffering, and they may, in fact, be hungry. But this is how God works. He does not let the righteous go hungry. But for the wicked, whatever they crave is thwarted by God. The Hebrew word translated thwarted speaks of God pushing them away. So It, it, it paints a very interesting picture. The wicked grasp and draw to themselves. They're trying to get money out of others in illegitimate ways. They're always reaching in a greedy way to get more and more, and in the end, God pushes it away from them. They're not just leveraging others. They're also fighting against God. And He pushes back at a certain place and time. And so what the godless crave never lasts long enough to really satisfy. The craving of the wicked is pushed away by God. Again, for us, the text points beyond its own day to a fuller reality, does it not? The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. In John 6, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Simply said, God blesses those who pursue wealth righteously and He opposes those who pursue wealth through illegitimate means. Their craving will go unsatisfied, but God will pour out His blessing and satisfaction upon His people. Verse 4, the instruction continues, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now this proverb counsels us to pursue a diligent, energetic work ethic. Dealing here with how we work. The slack hand refers to a careless, uninspired, listless, sluggish, inattentive effort. Well, I put through a few of those this week, have you? Uh, careless, uninspired, listless, sluggish, inattentive effort. God counsels us to recognize the virtue in hard work, in diligent effort. All things being equal, hard work yields the reward of wealth, while laziness leaves us impoverished. You see here in verse 4 the word diligent. The hand of the diligent makes rich. The Hebrew word is used figuratively here, but literally, it's interesting, the word is often translated sharp. I don't know if that's where we get it in our culture or not, but we talk about a sharp person. And particularly when it comes to doing work, we say, yeah, that's a, sharp, that's a sharp woman. That's a sharp man. They can do that job well. It comes from this Hebrew idea, I would suspect, of, of being sharp or figuratively here, being diligent. 
And this, too, is a common theme in Proverbs. Let us look again at the slide here and just look at a couple of cross-references. I've narrowed these down. There are many others, but the counselor says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. 28-29, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. This is how we work, with the call again to attentive energy. And this is something for young people that where there's great need to learn. Energetic, diligent work is not typic, does not typically come naturally. And so it is something that needs to be learned. This is one of the things I, I thank the Lord for uh, the work days that take place here at church. It's a time for us to come together across the generations and to teach diligent work. I love it that my kids have spent their life looking at men and women in this church working hard right in front of their eyes. Uh, hopefully they see that at home, but it's great to see that in the context of a local church. And I honestly, I'm telling you this honestly, this has nothing to do with the future mission trips and the need that we have to give to it, but when we have these work days for teens that go out to our homes, this is a great opportunity to have a chance to teach work. And some uh, within the assembly, as we have these teen auctions, have spent that time to mentor, to encourage our young people, and to press them to work appropriately. We don't get out any whips and drive them and slave labor laws don't apply or anything like that, but we do push them beyond what is natural. And in that, begin to teach hard work. This comes so much more naturally in an agrarian society. There isn't a whole lot of option. You're up early and you're doing chores and you're out late doing chores and it's just life and everybody's in it together in our setting where we find ourselves as a church there's a lot of loopholes for laziness and it is good for us to work together as a church and in our families to teach diligent effort god's counseling us this way it's a simple point we grasp it but it's important and it's important beyond just you in your own life and how you work as an adult, there's a job to be done in teaching a coming generation to model diligent, hard work. And there are those, perhaps among us, perhaps here, and I'm thinking of utterly no one, but there are some adults who do get stuck at age 14. They just don't know what diligent work is. They spend all of their life trying to sidestep hard work and don't realize that what they're doing is contributing to their own sorrow. I've worked with these kind of people in a factory, I can remember. They spend all day trying to sidestep work and they couldn't understand why the day went so long. They need to grow up. These were adults 
And from what I could see from my vantage point, I didn't want to live the rest of my life among this particular group. But what I also saw from my vantage point was that they were going to live the rest of their lives like this. And that hit me as one of the saddest scenes I've ever seen. To spend all day long trying to trick the system and do as little as you can is idiotic. And that's essentially what the Father's teaching us here. It's folly to live like that. The slack hand leads to poverty, and the slack hand leads to bringing shame to people who know God. Don't live like that. Work hard as God gives you the ability. Moving to verse 5, now we look at it from a different angle, and that's when to work. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Again, in agrarian society, it doesn't work quite the same potentially for us, but prudence translates a Hebrew word meaning insightful or having keen understanding. There's a son who has that keen understanding and he knows when it's time to work. He knows when it's time to gather. We must cultivate the moral skill of discerning when that time is. And we must cultivate the motivation to follow through. Procrastination and lazy disregard of one's responsibilities is folly and it does not end well. That's the idea. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So think of it, do we have this category? Skillful living includes the ability to to discern when to take a break, when to rest, when to vacation, and when to work. A wise person is able to look into the future, is able to see that he or she must work now because there's a day coming when my efforts today will be rewarded or my efforts today will be causing misery. We've got to be able to see ahead, looking forward, and living today in light of a day that is ahead. Fools are always nearsighted in this regard. Immaturity shows itself in nearsightedness. And you can see this immaturity in 70-year-olds. You can certainly see it in young people. There's only the capacity to see the moment and not to think ahead. So fools in their nearsightedness blow off work. They choose laziness because they cannot grasp the relationship between present effort and future reward. So for our young people, I say again pointedly and by way of encouragement, look long, look ahead, work toward the future, Be putting savings away. You'll need it. It's important to spend money at times, but probably not as many times as you think. Keep tucking money away. Keep saving it. Keep working now for the future, and you'll be opening doors for yourself in training and development down the road. And for those of us who are adults, learning to look long and work diligently is a vital skill that we want to pass on and demonstrate in our own life, and we will bear the fruits and the rewards of it. Those who do not live that way bring shame. 
The section ends then where it started with the shame a child can cast upon his or her parents. You see how the unit holds together. Hard-working, honest, long-looking work in the life of a child brings unique joy to the parents of that child, brings unique joy to all who surround that individual and love God. Now We can be proud in this, and we need to be careful not to be. But we should celebrate as a church and as families the diligent efforts of those who surround us. We do not live to gain our wealth from other people who will hand it to us. But we live to gain wealth for the glory of God. We were created to work. And this is part of how we live out our life, recognizing the Creator's role in our life. We were created to image our Creator as we move into this world to gain wealth and to subdue the earth for the glory of God. Now, clearly here in this text is primarily individual application. We need to all be considering our areas of laziness. Those places where we don't want to push ourselves and know that we ought to. We all need to be considering, how is it that I work? Do I look long? Do I understand the future implications? Am I bringing joy to others around me because of the diligent efforts that I put forward and how I gain wealth in this world? But I think there's also a corporate application that we can draw as the people of God here today. Indeed, these individuals indirectly in the book are being taught to prepare for the future for the health of the nation of Israel. So I think as the church of Jesus Christ, there is an application to us. We should be a church that works hard, diligently, with discernment, looking down into the future and understanding that there are times when it's time to work. It's time to be diligent. It's time to make sacrifice because of what we see coming down the road ahead. We need to grasp opportunities to serve Christ in this world with diligence and foresight. And I rejoice in what God is enabling this assembly to do, and I could list many things, but I I think as we prepare here very shortly to send out the folks to Spain as a church, as a sending church, certainly partnering with others, but we come now to this place of diligent effort to put forth this mission into this unique region of the earth where the gospel, where Jesus is heard, but not the gospel. That's going to take work. That has taken work. It has been difficult work at times. There is the service that takes place within the ministry of the church, those ministering to others, those giving of themselves and the gifts that they have to serve God's people. There is to be a zeal, an energy, a strength that comes from the Spirit of God that drives us to work harder than anyone else around us. Because the world might work fairly hard to get wealth for itself, but we have another project. And that's advancing the cause of Jesus Christ in this world. And that means we have to be hard workers. Most people are exhausted by their week of work, talking to adults with normal jobs and all that. But most people are absolutely exhausted. We come on top of that and throw in church activity, ministry responsibilities, the worries and concerns of pulling people along in Christ. Isn't that good? 
Would you want to live any different life than to have a cause that goes beyond you just providing for your own self? We are called together here to be diligent workers for God, to advance His cause, to reach the lost for Christ, to love one another, and to pour out our energies and efforts in working to build up the church of Jesus Christ. We have some great opportunities before us as God gives us life through these next months. Some tremendous opportunities to serve God with effort and with diligence. We need to be striving to do that and taking this message to heart. Now, there's one point where I've kind of just leaned a little bit away from the text to say there's a broader, larger conversation here. If we're not careful in a text like this, just getting locked into the individual challenge of it, which I hope there is some there for all of us, we can kind of look at this atomistically, just very, very sm- as a small issue, and really miss the purpose of this text, which is ultimately to lock us into the larger work of God in this world and His calling upon us as, a create, as our Creator, to really move into the world in which we live and to, and to fail to see that we are to be centered on Jesus Christ. At the core of our being, to submit to His Lordship such that in the area of work, in the area of gaining life, we have a center. We have a solid center that holds and guides us and directs us into all that we do. But to say that it certainly stretches far beyond just this topic, there is nothing in our lives that is not touched by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. How we relate to others, how we relate to wealth, how we relate to daily life, how we live it and the goals that we have. All of it is to be rooted in our identity in Jesus Christ. And those so rooted are going to work a certain way. They're going to pour out their energies and their life in a certain manner. And it's a manner that says, I am the creature of a loving Creator and Sovereign Lord who has put me in this world to get stuff done for Him and in provision even for myself, but to work with a sense of the future and to work diligently and energetically always for His glory, driven by what He's done for me in Christ in this area and in every other area of our lives to live wisely, skillfully for the glory of our Creator. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father, You are good to us. We rejoice in that goodness. We thank You for this fatherly counsel. In one sense, there's nothing here probably for the majority of us that is new, novel. But in a certain way, It is life-changing. And we thank You for that message, that word of wisdom. And I pray that we would learn to align our lives with Your truth. With heartfelt, earnest desire. We pray, Father, in behalf of anyone who does not know Christ as Savior. 
anyone who does not have the core of their being centered on Jesus Christ, who is not feeding upon Him and knows they'll never hunger again because of Jesus' presence in their life, for them we plead for salvation. And for those of us who know You as You counsel and direct and encourage us, I pray, Father, that we would be sanctified by Your Word. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and sing a song we've sung a few times during this series, but a great song asking the Lord to be our vision.